This is Tom Jacobs from tdjacobs.com and also healingsuicide.com, and I'm an evolutionary astrologer and also an energy worker, a channel, and a medium. And uh, at tdjacobs.com, uh, you'll find a tremendous number of tools to help you in your journey no matter where you are, including programmed crystals, uh, 16 books, and... Uh, classes, MP3s, energy work, meditations, all kinds of things. And at HealingSuicide.com, you'll find an explanation of soul and its multi-life journey, how we can deal better with emotions that are very difficult in order to prevent suicide. Uh, so those are my two sites. This MP3 today is announcing a new book, Living Myth to Sacred Psychology. And uh, I'm really excited about this. I started, uh, well, it's volume two. And, and, and well, I'll just tell you, in this MP3, I'll give you an overview of the book and kind of the, some of the process of writing it, and um, and maybe that will pique your interest to uh, to check it out. It's uh, not an astrology book. It's about mythology. So it's about um, myth and archetype. And what I did in, in Volume 1 of Living Myth, uh, most of which, or some of which, is a collection of online articles that I wrote in 2007 and 2008 when I was just getting my start with writing, um, in you know, uh, metaphysical stuff, uh, and um, I collected them, and then I wanted to tell this story. I wanted to flesh it out, and so I wrote a handful of more chapters, including a long, extended chapter at the end, which introduces the archetype Arjun Suri, which is asteroid two zero three zero zero. That one does include some info on astrology, um, and shortly after that. I started work on Volume 2 because I was really excited. So that book came out in the spring or late winter of 2010, so early 2010. It was one of my first three books. And um, I love writing about mythology. I love taking the stories that we live and helping people understand the archetypal thread, behind, which is part of your psyche and a part of you that can't help but unfold naturally as you seek certain experiences and try to process what it means to be human um, versus the myth which is always social instruction so myth says do this don't do that be this kind of person don't be that kind of person and whenever I hear a mythological story you know sometimes I don't relate to all of them but the, when I do relate to one of them I'll say Oh man, these cautionary tales, the stories sometimes end up so awful. Like the outcomes are so terrible. But I recognize myself in that story, and I've wondered at different times in my life, especially as a kid, when I identify with the story, wait a minute, do I have does that have to be my life? Does that have to turn out that way? So what I do is explain what this myth seems to be about, given that we're telling each other over generations, over millennia, do this, don't do that, how to be a, the right kind of person in organized society, how to be the wrong kind of person. So that's what mythology essentially is in any culture, in all cultures, a collection of stories to try to help you be part of the world in a healthy way as you're creating it together right, as a collective, and then how not to do certain other things. And don't, don't mess it up by being egotistical or thinking you're better than the gods or making this mistake or whatever. So 
in Volume 1, I went through the asteroid goddesses and Chiron and Lilith and, and some other ones that, that could be applied to, including Arjun Suri, could be applied to astrology. Uh, the second volume, I just sat down and said, okay, well, now that Volume 1 is out, what stories are still on my mind? And I started collecting, you know, diff different... Uh, different lists and thinking about stories and doing research. Now that started, I think, in 2010 or 2011. Uh, so well, here it is, it's 2018, and this book is finally finished. It took a long time for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One is that I, I had to revise the table of contents intuitively. So essentially, I made a list, and I think there were probably 14 or 15 original chapters in there. And I would look at it and feel into it and kind of basically meditate while looking at it and feel into what was true. And I went through several versions of that, cutting out a couple stories. There was one that I was totally into because it's actually, there's a lot of juice in it. And it's Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> but it got cut because it just wasn't as juicy as the other 11 that were kept. So anyway, there were different um, versions over the years. And also, there were some um, different issues where, where I'm talking about this mythology, this story we receive, and how we perceive the story has to unfold you know, in our lives. And then I'm thinking about the terrible outcomes. And then I'm thinking about, well, this is a thread within a person. I actually had to go through my own process to get to the archetypal thing and to accept it and understand it beyond the mythological, you know, the story construct. So there were several in there that I had to do that with. One of them uh, is, I'll list all the chapters in a bit but and say a little about it, but one of them was Penelope and Sisyphus, Why Bother? Because that really centers on existential questions that have dogged me my whole life. Like, why bother being alive? Like, what the hell is this stupid game? Like, what's going on here? And, um, and, and I had to work through that. And I've been working on that since I was a teenager. I'm 45 right now. <laughs> so I've been working on that a long time. So that took a long time to figure out how to resolve that question, why bother? And I intellectually understood certain things from studying existentialism and writing a thesis on um, Albert Camus, who was a, a, a prominent person kind of in that groove, who had a very empowering take, who has a very empowering take on why bother, and that chapter goes into it. But I had to process certain things about futility. Another one was uh, Don Juan and Dionysus, because they're two sides of the same archetype, but both can go wrong and also can go right. And it took me several years, I'm not kidding, it took me several years to work out in my head what that looks like. And I think because of my own blocks regarding some things about relationships, sexuality, seduction, just my own process uh, with Mars in the first square of the nodes, with Pluto conjunct Venus in the 12th, I had to, and it, that took a long time. And those two chapters were the, the most frustrating out of all of those. Um, and now, and so, so coming back to, to revisit those chapters and I did that, you know, at least every year I would read through the whole thing and, um, I knew I wasn't ready. Like I was lit up to do it, but I knew I wasn't ready. So this book more than any other book, 
uh, represents a, a long-term, you know, a series of internal processes. I also have to say that when I, you know, first wrote some of those columns in in um, in uh, 2007-2008 for the first that became collected in the sec in the first volume, I well, my writing has matured since then. So I, the the themes and the points in Living Myth One I stand by, but I recognize that my writing has advanced quite a lot, and for different reasons. Um, uh, one of them is uh, I've been dating someone who's an editor who went through, I want to say, four or five books and one of the natal reports uh, shortly after we met um, seven years ago. And her comments made me realize certain things about my writing style. And so I actually became a better writer. So that's part of it. But it's also just my confidence as a writer separately from that. My confidence that what I'm seeing my idea, you know, it either goes somewhere or it doesn't. But when it does go somewhere, when it does explain something, that I can invest in that and focus on it and work. So my confidence is different and my writing is better. Um, so I encourage you, if you haven't explored Living Myth 1, the full title is Living Myth, Exploring Archetypal Journeys. I encourage you to get both of these books to get a full picture of, of, of this whole story of, of how this works. Um, but I do acknowledge that if you're reading them back to back, if you read Living Myth 1 and then Living Myth 2, you'll say, it looks like the same guy wrote it, but he didn't really know what he was doing at the first volume, did he? So I acknowledge that and, uh, you know, with some humility. But, um, yeah, but hopefully you can uh, groove into the themes and the point of, you know, separating out myth and archetype. So in, um, in Volume 2, the full title is uh, Living Myth 2, Sacred Psychology, and, and I want to say a little bit about what that means. We understand the, um, the import of psychology. Of course we do. How inextricably linked is it to our worldview and our view of ourselves, you know, understanding the individual and how, you know, people become groups and how things work. Um, yet, sometimes... It can be easy from an academic or intellectual standpoint in analyzing the psyche, psychology, the study of the psyche, right? The study of um, mental energy, the study of how we think and why we do what we do, how we behave, why we do what we do. Um, it's easy to get into analytical intellectual talking modes, and we still have a, an innate sense of meaningfulness. We need meaning. So sacred psychology is a way of approaching psychology that acknowledges this innate need for meaning. I've been aware of this phrase for uh, quite a while, and yet when I read, um, I'm going to read you a little quote here, let me go look it up. When I read um, the foreword that evolutionary astrologer, uh, my teacher Stephen Forrest, wrote for uh, The Soul's Journey One, also in 2010, um, that's my, the first, um, the first uh, astrology book that I wrote, uh, Soul's Journey 1, the first in the trilogy, uh, thus far trilogy, there are some others in process, uh, Astrology, Reincarnation, and Karma with a Medium and Channel, and um, let me just scroll down here, sorry, I wasn't prepared to do this, uh, yeah, so what he writes in this forward is, um, uh, insights from disembodied beings 
combined with his own natural insights and his solid training in evolutionary astrology, placed Tom in this fine book on the cutting edge of not only evolutionary astrology, but also the emerging paradigms of sacred psychology. Now, like I said, I've been aware of this phrase for a while, um, and yet when I read that, I said, oh my God, that is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> oh yeah, this whole, because I talk a lot about our Neptunian need, you know, the natural human impulse to need a sense of meaning. The Jupiterian part of us will seek it, but the Neptune is this craving for a, for a sense of connection to the divine or something. So I realized when I, re when I read that, I was like, whoa, I think he's on to something, that I'm on to something. So, so anyway, that kind of coalesced, you know. And so as I thought about the second volume, I said, that is the framework. That's kind of where I'm headed with this. Um, the idea that, let's talk about how we live these mythological stories, not so that we can talk <laughs> and see ourselves in stories, but so that we can learn how to better live, given our innate need for a sense of meaningfulness and purposefulness. And like I said, with the existentialism stuff, I've been doing that basically since I was 18, and I read Camus' novel The Stranger in an, in an AP English class. And the, te the interpretation the teacher gave, a very smart woman with a lot of years of experience, the interpretation she offered, I was like, I don't know about that. And that set me on several years of thinking about it. But I, and when I was a junior in college, three years later, or is that four years later, whatever, I, I figured it out when I was writing a mini thesis for a philosophy class. Because where I went to school, you had to, um, it was the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, uh, spelled W-O-O-S-T-E-R, um, you had to write a thesis to graduate. Given your discipline and their expectations, like like a like a um, you know a theater major's uh, thesis could be a small paper, but with a directing a production. So so it's different things, but mostly it was um, you know an academic paper. Uh, and and mostly the equivalent of a master's thesis, and that was part of the the lure of that school, but also the dread in the 18-year-old uh, Tom Jacobs who committed to going to the school. But anyway, um, and I and I I basically did my well when you're a junior. I, I did philosophy. I majored in philosophy. And when you're a junior in the philosophy department, they you spend the the second semester basically getting like using training wheels <laughs> and learning how to approach, how to write different arguments. You're learning about philosophical argumentation, how to make a case for something, how to work through something. And so you take this, I think of it as training wheels, <laughs> and you ended up writing a 10-page thesis, which is the mini-thesis your junior year. And I did that on uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger and the Myth of Sisyphus. Then my senior year, I took that as a foundation and and wrote about Samuel Beckett, the Irish playwright, who um, lived out some of these themes of meaningfulness because he spent his entire... Well, the thing with Camus, he says, you, the only way you're going to have meaningfulness is if you choose to create it on a daily basis for and within yourself. And then you bring something to the world that you perceive as meaningful you thereby have the sense of meaningfulness. I'm totally paraphrasing, but that's the idea. And so then I used Beckett as an example, and I analyzed, I can't remember how many of his of his short plays, not the long ones, not like Waiting for Godot, but like short ones, 
which are ex experimental, considered kind of experimental. But Beckett spent, you know, I don't know, 60 years of his life or something um, writing, like perfecting his techniques and imagining, you know, different theater devices, you know, lighting, pacing, writing, you know, whatever, blocking. He imagined all of these um, devices to perfect his statement that life is meaningless and not worth living, which I, I, I found such a juicy irony and so beautiful. So Camus says you could only have meaning if you create it yourself. And then Beckett spends his whole life creating meaning to perfect his statement that life is not worth living because it's meaningless. <laughs> anyway, so I, I got to kick out of that. But anyway, so so I, that was the, the senior thesis. So it's kind of like... Um, tacking on this this other bit but anyway you had to you had to do this and so when I was sitting with this prospect of, of this 10 page paper uh, at the culmination of this whole semester of, of work on different you know learning to, to argue different things and think about writing philosophical philosophical texts and um, I had a breakthrough and I understood what Camus was doing and so this thing flew out of me and, and it happened and anyway so since then I've been thinking about all this stuff like why bother right? Um, but we need we need to know there's a point, and that's really the problem that people who are having what I would call existential issues or you know the existential crisis that's really what's going on. You need to know there's a reason why you should bother living. So that for me is the core of sacred psychology, not just let's look at you know why you're doing what you're doing, but let's you know start with the premise that you're a spiritual being. And you need to know you're connected to the divine. You need to know you are the divine, that you're welcome here. So anyway, that is uh, the introduction explains this in more detail and with different uh, different angles. But but uh, let me look, read through the chapters and just give you a basic, uh, basic overview of what's going on here. Uh, the first one is uh, Adam and Eve, our favorite dom and sub. And I don't know that most people would consider Adam and Eve mythological figures, but they are. And, um, you know, people hold the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, texts as sacred, but essentially these are mythological stories. Be like this, don't be like this. And I'll tell you, um, the reason I actually, um, this book was with uh, my girlfriend, the editor, and uh, some stuff has been going on and she hadn't been able to get to it. Or she did like three or four chapters, um, but she'd had it for nine months. And we've just had a bunch of like stuff going on in our lives and, and um you know, being uh, uh, displaced in temporary housing for the last four months as of, you know, almost four and a half months now in, in, in August here. And I just, and I kept seeing these headlines about Mike Pence, the U.S. vice president. And I had to just say to her, I have to take this book back and finish it and finish editing it myself because Mike Pence is the biggest Adam, a yes man who has no principles. So uh, Adam and Eve you know, with Judeo-Christian expectations of what a man should be like, what a woman should be like. So, uh, and I say our favorite dom and sub because to, you know, in patriarchal culture, to be the right kind of woman, you have to listen to a man. And to be a man, you have to listen to a bigger man. If you're an Adam, you have, there's always a bigger Adam. Somebody who's uh, who has more power or seems to, 
and is uh, enforcing the cultural expectations of who you should be and what you should do. So anyway, so I spell that out in Adam and Eve, our favorite diamond sub. That that might be my fa my favorite chapter here because just uh, piercing through the assumption that these are sacred figures. Well, they're mythological figures, and and they are within us. If you're familiar with my work on Lucifer and Lilith, I often treat those four as a quartet. Adam and Eve, Lucifer and Lilith. As Adam and Eve are the culturally appropriate or sanctioned and supported versions of man and woman, and Lucifer and Lilith are the culturally demonized versions of man and woman. So in a way, this Adam and Eve teaching has been brewing since I started work on Lilith and started looking at the differences between these expectations of women, of the, you know, expectations of these kinds of women and expectations of those kinds of women. So that's been a long time in process. The next chapter is Orpheus, fear versus faith. And Orpheus is the one who uh, loses his uh, new wife, their newlyweds, uh, uh, Eurydice, and um, he makes a deal to retrieve her from the underworld, which is unheard of. And then he and then he messes it up, and she's lost forever. So fear versus faith, and and uh, Orpheus's story is um, about grief and loss, but also learning to be present. Okay, Pallas Athene is the next one. Daddy's little girl. Now, in the first volume. I had Pallas Athene and re reintegration. And the idea in that volume was there's something that you might attempt to divorce yourself from within yourself. Like attempted divorce. You try to shelve and distance from you something that's real about you, but you need to integrate it. In volume two, Daddy's Little Girl theme, it, it centers on this, uh, in one way, on this parthenogenesis idea where it is said that Pallas Athene emerged fully formed and fully armored from her father's head. Well, so therefore, cutting out the the middle the middle woman of the mother who gave birth to the person, right? And the idea is that um, well, what happened in the story is that um, Zeus or Jupiter, because of his own malfunctions and personality dominance issues, he swallowed the pregnant mother. So when Pallasithian emerged, she was fully formed. So that's how it works, but you cut out the matrilineal lineage. And so here's, so in Daddy's Little Girl, uh, I analyze Daddy's Little Girl and also it's applicable to Mommy's Little Boy and talking about the expectations and the kind of um, often unspoken contract that each of them are supposed to be perfect. That, that the little girl will always be the right kind of little girl and that the daddy will always be the right kind of daddy and kind of uh, blowing that up from the inside. I actually love that. I love that chapter. I think I love this whole book. Uh, and then Eris, Pushing Buttons and Lighting Fires. And, and there is a, a long astrology book that's based on this, and, and that's the title, Eris, Pushing Buttons and Lighting Fires. But I wanted to summarize Myth and Archetype and spell some things out because um, that book's taking forever to finish. I also started that in uh, 2011. So uh, Pushing Buttons and Lighting Fires, you can... With Eris's awareness of your insecurities, like your Eris-style awareness of others' insecurities, you can push people's buttons, uh, which can lead to competition and one-upsmanship and saving face. Uh, or you can light fires under people. If you know what is insecure about them, but you have a generous spirit and you're supportive, you can help them grow and just help them see how to overcome their insecurities and grow. Uh, so that's a that's a really important thing chapter in this book because I always use Eris in astrology work, and I teach about the archetype quite often. Uh, but again, this chapter is not about astrology. 
but it does relate to something we do use in charts. Uh, the next chapter is Paris and the Power of Choice. Eris's story starts um, things a series of uh, events in motion that results in the Trojan War, which is explained in the Eris chapter. Well, Paris's story, uh, the trial of Paris, is part of this, and it's when he is asked by Zeus or Jupiter to um, decide who was the fairest among these three goddesses that Eris through the golden apple in the middle of the reception, this whole story started. And uh, and Paris uh, has to make this choice. And so we talk about the power of choice and why you choose what you choose, who you think you are, what's available to you, and what a choice, like what power a choice is, but also not making a choice is. Uh, so that's part of this, the series of the Trojan War kind of the stories here. And uh, the last one is uh, in that series is Iphigenia's Sacrifice. She's also part of this. She's the daughter of Agamemnon, who is the the, the city-state king, who is leading the forces that will that will the Greek forces that will go to to war with Troy uh, in the Trojan War. So um, this is about how a parent can inadvertently uh, sacrifice the will or free will of a child, uh, and what that dynamic looks like, and how to come out of it. Uh, if you've ever felt controlled by a parent or that you can't speak your truth or be independent because of you have to walk on eggshells or have to not, you know, rankle that parent, that that's what this is about, Iphigenia's sacrifice. The next one, Don Juan and Dionysus, lovers of women. You know, Don Juan, I don't know if, if he's really considered a mythological figure, but he is. And then, of course, Dionysus, uh, straight from the Greek. Uh, the Roman version, Bacchus, uh, understand that Greek versions of myths come before Roman versions of myths. So when you hear that, um, oh yeah, Dionysus is the Greek version, well there's a story. But in the Roman telling, it will have changed. All, always. You know, Ares and Mars, uh, Zeus and Jupiter, all, they, they change. The stories change somewhat. Especially the goddesses. Uh, but Dionysus, because um, Dionysus is a priest... Who is a god? Sorry, he is a god, who is a priest of the goddess. That's unique, and so his story had to be morphed into being not a servant of the goddess who opens women through ecstasy and pleasure and prayer, but into uh, a drunken reveler who makes women crazy and they lose their shit and they kill people by mistake because they're insane. So anyway, I kind of tease out. Um, different versions of the lover archetype, including you know Don Juan. So uh, the next uh, story is Prometheus. The subtitle is Knowledge is Power and the Gift of Innovation. We know Prometheus is this Uranian figure who's um, seizing new tools, right? He steals fire from the gods and then is punished for it, but he gives that fire in the meantime to humans. He's known as a champion of humanity. And so uh, knowledge is power. When is knowledge power? When is it not power? And what do you get when you innovate? What do you give when you innovate? So I like that chapter because I'm pretty Uranian, and uh, it was uh, fun to spell all that out. The next one is Nessus, living in two worlds. And this is another a teaching that can be applied to astrology. It's a centaur, and I uh, like Chiron, uh, but different in energy and nature. And I do use Nessus in my, in my chart readings as well. Um, living two worlds, you're an animal, but you're also in civilized society, 
Do you suppress your animal nature, or do you figure out ways to integrate it and work with it? And uh, Nessus can involve us suppressing something natural, and it could be sexual desire, but it could not be. It could be creative, it could be artistic, it could be the urge to be in nature, but we suppress it and then eventually kind of kind of blow up sometimes. Um, so living in two worlds, how do we do that? And I kind of break down this myth and talk about seven archetypal threads, including carrying or ferrying others. Um, you know, one, one, one subsection is the power of biological materials because there's a thing about the efficacy of uh, Nessus's blood carrying the poison of the Hydra after Heracles kills him, uh, and also leaving a legacy, needing to establish a legacy. So there are seven of those uh, subthreads in there. Uh, the next one is Penelope and Sisyphus, why bother? And as I mentioned, there's a focus on Camus' existentialism. Let me just say right now that um, if I say the word existentialist, you may have an idea of who those people are or what that's about. But understand that most of them, all except Camus, or until Camus, say, you know, life is terrible, the universe is care, you know, doesn't care about you, but you need, you know, and, and they talk about the absurd, which is the collision of your, sen your innate need for meaningfulness, but the stark reality, the inevitability that you'll never find it. And it's depressing until Camus comes along and says, okay, well, let's say the universe doesn't care about you and you can't get meaningfulness from outside. What are you going to do about it? And so Camus puts it squarely on your shoulders. If you're going to have meaningfulness, you have to create it. So essentially, you know, a huge part of my life, but also how I teach people to understand themselves and live human life involves this Sisyphus story. Why bother, right? Because um, we all have the potential to be disheartened by our, our experiences and what we see in the world or what happens around us or to us. But can we take on our shoulders the responsibility? Like, are we willing to take responsibility for creating meaningfulness that we need? So I'm really proud of that chapter and also the 27 years of life process that it represents for me. Uh, Penelope, well, Sisyphus pushes a boulder up a, a hill and, and as a punishment is doomed to do this for eternity. It rolls down against his will after he finishes pushing it up. So there's a sense of endless, meaningless task, labor, that gets you nothing. Um, that's um, Camus' illustration of meaninglessness, right? But then he reframes it and takes it apart from the inside. Penelope, on the other hand, is the wife of Ulysses, who is uh, the king of Ithaca, who has been gone for 20 years, or is gone for 20 years in this story, uh, fighting the Trojan War and then trying to get back. The Trojan War doesn't last that long, but he has all these ridiculous uh, delays on the way back. And, and the Odyssey is the story of his, you know, his return. So I guess that's the fourth one in the, in the uh, starting with Eris in the uh, Trojan War series in this book. Um, but Penelope is his uh, wife, and he is presumed dead, but she won't give up on him. So, um, yeah, I'm just thinking of the power of love, these kind of 80s uh, rock ballads. But, but um, she won't give up on him. And um, she has a bunch of suitors in Ithaca who are camped out in the, in the palace who want her to give up on him and marry one of them because they want power, prestige, and wealth. And uh, she won't do it. So she, she says, I will choose a suitor when Laertes, uh, the father of Ulysses, when this funeral... Uh, dress, his funeral uh, 
clothing is done. So she weaves it during the day and embroiders it, and at night she undoes it. So she's investing in this work and then undoing it consciously. Sisyphus is investing in this work and having it undone against his will. So I, I tease that out in this why bother from both of their perspectives and giving an empowered perspective to, you know, to each story, to each kind of story. And then the last chapter is about Oedipus, who is um, one of the more famous uh, uh, figures in this book. The subtitle is Pain, Karma, and the Fallacy of Destiny. And I tease apart the apparent inevitability of certain things, you know, certain things that become train wrecks. And when you look at it later, you're like, oh my God, was that always supposed to happen? Could I ever get out of that? So how to deal with pain, how to understand karma, and then of course the fallacy of destiny. And, and what does it mean to make a choice? There, there's another version uh, other than Paris's chapter on what it means to make a choice and how we can stop what look like disasters and make the right choices. So that, uh, that's the rundown of the introduction plus the 11 chapters. So this book, uh, Living Myth 2, Sacred Psychology, is available now through tdjacobs.com. Uh, as well as Amazon and uh, Kindle. And I hope you enjoy it. I recommend getting both volumes if you haven't read Living Myth, Exploring Archetypal Journeys. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for your time and energy. And also check out everything else I offer at tdjacobs.com and also healingsuicide.com. Take care.